Welcome to weekends. Yes, yes, Nando. I love that Miami boy coming out, you know, bumping and grinding to that sweet, sweet Jacobin song. So oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> What's Just up, everyone? In the club. You know, with the Jacobin song. Uh, pretty soon, we'll just get, like, David Guetta to do a remix of the Jacobin intro song. Um, Can you imagine? And, yeah, it'll be so good. Jacobin going mainstream. That's a, that's what will happen. Everyone will yep. be like, what is this song? Where does it come from? And then we'll just slowly radicalize people. That's what we do here Absolutely. over at Jacobin. Yeah. Anyway, uh, welcome, everyone, to a special edition of Weekends. I say it's a special edition because the format of the show is going to be a little different today because this is pre-recorded. So uh, we're releasing this during our regularly scheduled program, but it's a pre-tape because of the fact that uh, Nando and I aren't available this weekend, unfortunately, uh, but we still wanted to make sure that we had a show ready to go for you guys. So we're going to have Big Waz on, Wazni Lambre, to help us, you know, dig into some of these stories of the week. Uh, we're going to talk about the PRO Act. We are going to discuss Israel, um, and so just consider the fact that this is a pre-taped show. So if we say anything that's a little bit outdated, that's the reason why. But we're going to have more of a general discussion about it. And then um, I'm super excited for our interview with Alex Press. Uh, she's going to come on to discuss some of the latest trends with Amazon and what they're doing with their, you know, I think it's more of a PR strategy than anything um, in trying to make it appear as though they're actually not so terrible to their workers, but we know otherwise. So um, it's going to be a great show. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, it's, this is a, a new format for us. We're experimenting. It's like that classic uh, Mr. So sketch, uh, the pre-taped Colin show. You know, it's very difficult to coordinate. So there won't be any live comments no live questions because we are not live we're this this thing that you're watching right now actually is not happening right now it already happened in the past so if we were to answer live comments it would be very difficult to coordinate so um, it'd be hard yeah. to do it yeah it would be very um hard. so i thought we would start off though with some excellent news and it was the announcement that lula da silva is planning to run for president in brazil um and look that's just a small part of the good news, the real good news, is that Lula is now following Nando on Twitter. This is true, folks. Many people are saying, maybe Kale can pull up the, the graphic. I don't know if he has it at the ready. Uh, many people are saying that uh, Nando is one of the hottest Twitter follows in the world right now because former president of Brazil, current candidate for the presidency of Brazil, Lula da Silva, followed me on Twitter this week. I was very excited. I don't know really, I, I don't understand why he did, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that whoever, whichever young staffer manages his Twitter account, uh, you know, found my account and uh, and followed me. But, you know, this is a big deal. This is like, you know, air horn time, you know, yeah, exactly. There it is. You know, Sweet. that's very, very cool. Uh, you know, this is a big deal. I mean, Brazil is one of the biggest democracies in the world in terms of population. It's the largest country in South America. More people live in Brazil than all the rest of South America combined. So, you know, in the specter of not just Latin American politics, but global politics, um, to have a leader like Lula da Silva uh, challenging for the presidency of what is, I mean, has to be said, probably one of the worst governments in the world yeah. right now, the Jair Bolsonaro government. I mean, just the stakes uh, of, of of this election couldn't be higher. The, you know, 
obviously the fate of the Amazon is <laughs> important to all of us uh, in the rest of the world. We, we, we love and we need the Amazon, you know, not just for BBC uh, nature documentaries, but for like, you know, the ecosystem of the planet. Um, and, uh, and, and also for, for COVID because the, the mm-hmm. Bolsonaro's response to COVID has been so disastrous that, you know, different variants are, are flaring up in, in Brazil. Um, again, it's a very large country. A ton of people live there, like over 200 million people live there. So, um, yeah, we're going to be watching that one very closely. It is, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't think of a better example of socialism or barbarism, right? That's what mm-hmm. it is. It's it's a very clear choice in that election. It's not like, you know, the right-wing fascist versus some squishy neoliberal centrist, which is what we're used to in yes. democracies lately. You know, we're used to Trump versus Biden. We're used to Jean-Marie Le, uh, Marine Le Pen versus Macron. You know, we're used to, uh, you know, the Spanish right-wing maniacs, uh, Casado and all them versus... Pedro Sanchez, you know, like they, you know, they, it's, it's just, uh, it sucks. And, um, and this, and this time we can actually, we actually have a real alternative, a real choice. And, uh, it's going to be very exciting. It is exciting. And, you know, I think it's just through years and years of covering politics and, and how much outcomes have kind of beaten me down or beaten my optimism down. So um, understand that that's where I'm coming from when I ask this question. But, you know, I was thinking about what could possibly go wrong because Lula was, I mean, tremendously popular in the election between Lula and Bolsonaro. And then, of course, as we all know, Bolsonaro and the um, uh, judicial minister, uh, Sergio Moro, uh, essentially did uh, a, a political stunt to imprison him. He was a political prisoner. And he was eventually freed, but there was a technicality, right? So the judge ruled that the jurisdiction in which he was prosecuted was not the right jurisdiction. So I don't know if uh, they're going to try to prosecute him again in the right jurisdiction. Um, but what I do know is that the people of Brazil find him to be tremendously popular because of what he did in lifting so many people out of poverty in that country. Um, So it makes sense that he would be as popular as he is and that it would take uh, a political imprisonment of Lula to defeat him. Otherwise, he would have won that election. Well, I mean, you're right that that his initial ruling was about this technicality over jurisdiction. But but in follow up kind of uh, decisions, they they also kind of uh, made uh, Sergio Moro himself kind of it, you know, they invalidated his all his kind of investigation. You know, like so they, it, it, you know, in the context of Lula himself, it was it was quite narrow. But in, in the context of Sergio Moro, you know, the courts really kind of slapped him down pretty uh, pretty comprehensively. I think that, you know, obviously the worst case scenario in Brazil, which is not something that we should discount because it's a very real possibility, mm-hmm. is the military steps in. They're just like no, yeah. um, you know, there's going to be a. Um, uh, definitely, like the media campaign against Lula will be vicious, uh, as Brazil's media is, is horribly captured by uh, its ruling elite. I mean, the thing is that Bolsonaro is such a buffoon, and he's been such a disaster on this one issue, which is COVID, that even even a lot of people who might have previously been like totally okay with him, like the you know Fernando Henrique Cardoso's of the world, who were kind of squishy centrists mm-hmm. who supported. Um, him over instead of the PT because they just hated the PT uh, so much Um, like those kind of people like they just probably can't bring themselves to uh, 
you know, gin up support for Bolsonaro again a second time around, given all that's been going on, you know, just given the, the obvious ludicrousness of his candidacy. It's a little bit like what happened with Trump in which, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the problem with the, the Trump thing is that because Biden was so, like, uninspiring and whatever that it was just, you know, that was the, the, the grim choice. But, like, sort of respectable society was not was not behind Trump in any meaningful way. Uh, they were behind Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, the last time around. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it'll be a very, very fascinating uh, election. One of the most, I, I have to say, like, just from like from a pure just kind of politics as spectacle standpoint, like, you know, politics is WWE. You can't think of a more exciting election in forever. I, like, seriously, like, this is just going to be like all of everything coming to a head in Mm -hmm. in in this one place so it's it's definitely going to be very exciting yeah it's definitely something to look forward to um you know you mentioned republicans and trump and it it reminded me like there are some parallels between bolsonaro and donald trump but there are some pretty stark differences in the political climate in the united states versus brazil so it's it is kind of amazing to see republicans one after the next kind of come out and not just to minimize what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, uh, which, you know, the rioters breached the Capitol and it was chaos. You know, just today it was reported that Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, uh, likened that day and what happened that day to a peaceful protest, yeah. which well, they the just all fall in line, all of them. They, they love don't, him. They, just, they love it. They love him. Yep. But they raise the, money the off of it. The biggest difference between Trump and Bolsonaro is that um, Trump, while he probably enjoyed a good amount of support amongst the military's rank and file, he did not enjoy any support from the military top brass, like the generals and the admirals and the, you know, the the sort of um, the professionalized uh, officer class of the military was, you know, saw Trump as like unstable, embarrassing, um, you know, not someone that they were comfortable uh, leading the the military machine, Bolsonaro himself comes from the Brazilian officer class. Uh, he was mm-hmm. a Brazilian military officer, um, and again, the Brazilian military—that's always the X factor in this kind of thing. You know, Trump was a fancy, you know, just a you know pretty, just a little squishy boy from from Queens. He was not a he was not an army man. Um, <laughs> he, he, yeah. he, he did not have their support in, in any meaningful way. Um, that was always like the, when we were talking about the coup of potential in the United States, it's like, well, what, what, were the, what would the generals do? Would the generals mm-hmm. support this kind of thing? And the answer was always no. They were never going to do that for Trump. Brazilian generals? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, Well, Nando, uh, we've got some stories to get to, uh, but before we do that, why don't you give a shout out to our partner, Verso? Yeah, because they got some stories too. Because if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in May, you'll get these four books. The Last Man Takes LSD, 
Foucault and the end of revolution. I love the idea of just Foucault being the last guy to ever take LSD. Anyway, by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora. White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective. Neither vertical nor horizontal. Diagonal. No, I'm kidding. Uh, A Theory of Political Organization by Rodrigo Nunes. And Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Ede. Very nice. Um, you're, you're, you're in a mood today. I like it, Nando. It's a lot of You know, fun. it's the week. It's the week, baby. Like on the weekends, you know, it's, I'm in a good mood on the weekends and things like that, but I don't know, like for some reason, this, uh, this pre-tape format has me all extra pepped up. I mean, usually live gets me going, but, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like a Saturday morning <laughs> thing where, you know, it's just yeah, it's Saturday morning. Totally. I'm supposed to be watching cartoons. <laughs> you know? Dude, it's funny because, um, we're both super busy. You're super busy. And so, yeah, Saturday mornings are kind of chaotic and hectic and we're trying to get elements into kale as soon as possible, yeah. you know, but we're working till the very last minute, right, right up to the moment we go live. So I wake yeah, up at 6am totally every Saturday to produce my part of the show which I should probably do on Friday, but I'm busy. I have stuff to do. I it's have so stuff hard. to do. It's so hard. It's hard. Fridays. So I just yeah. do it on Saturday morning, 6 a.m. Yeah, it's not It's not fun. So by the time the show comes around, I'm like, oh, okay, God, finally. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I'm exactly. yelling at Kale all morning. I'm like, Kale, do the thing, you stupid. And then he's like, oh, did you read the latest thing? Catalyst? And I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> My favorite thing about Kale is when on Saturday mornings, when it's just already chaos, he'll send us like insanely long essays to read that are great. They're fantastic essays and certainly would Eh, enrich our segments. Some of them are like just the densest fucking theory you could ever imagine. And, And you're like, what does this have anything of relevance to a broadcast audience? They will have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. I kind of like it, which is ironic because when I was in, um, when I was getting my master's in poli sci, theory was what I hated the most. I couldn't stand it. I thought it was super boring. I wanted to, because at least in the classes that I was taking, they wouldn't apply theory to current events. And I was like, this Mm. is, how how does this apply to what we're experiencing right now? And this was while we were um, in the Bush administration. That was when I was going to school for poli sci. But now I eat it up. Like I just, I think it's actually super interesting. No. And these frameworks help to uh, help me to understand and kind of like, uh, not, I guess like dismantle certain things yeah. um, with a better or understanding. Process, process events. Process. Right? So, yes. Yeah. I mean, I love the theory. Don't get me wrong. I love the theory. But we're trying to put asses in the seats over here. We need to put fans in the stands. We need to entertain the people. If we start fucking going in on some you know, boring ass dense bullshit uh you know they're gonna they're gonna run away in droves yeah i mean i I know kale can hear me right now and he's you know he's too much of a coward to come on and face the music but uh uh you know the saturday morning theory dump i'm on vacation (laughs) this is this is is not okay (laughs) i i do this on my vacation for you guys for the fans yeah you're probably what, what are you reading some like angles uh you know, treatise uh, on the English working class uh, for the twelfth time. Is that like your vacation? No, I'm I'm reading the debates on historical materialism um, started by G. A. Cohn in 1978. <laughs> I know, I love, but is my favorite person. Like, I love it. I love who is Kale, Nando. Where do these young 
like early 20s men come from like david griscom kale like oh, where do yeah. they come from i honestly from the I material realities of which their 20s. generation has been upraised yeah. you know you and i and are true. of a different generation we are we are geriatric millennials okay um but th- there was that tweet that went viral okay. maybe kale can find it and edit it in <laughs> But there's a tweet that went viral, I think, by that guy, Dan Price, who's like the the good Silicon Valley guy who like takes like a $70,000 a year salary so he can pay his employees more. Um, anyway, that guy had a tweet that went viral that was essentially a breakdown of like um, wealth uh, in America by generation and like, you know, the boomers versus millennials and Gen Zers and whatever. And um, it just shows you like how much wealth was accumulated by the boomer generation, which is why they are all so conservative. Contra to popular belief. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, that was quick, Kale. Well done. Um, yeah, so millennials hold 4.8% of all wealth, uh, and there are now 40-year-old millennials. I am not one of them just yet. Um, at the Me same sure. age, Gen X had 9% of wealth, and the boomers had uh, the boomers had 21% of wealth. So that's why wow. uh, boomers are also conservative, which, again, is the, the misconception is that the hippie generation were all these kind of like rabid left-wingers. It's true. There were hippies, and they were left-wing, but they were a very small percentage of the overall generational cohort. They, those, all those people were fucking buzz-cut, um, you know, right-wingers. And uh, whereas millennials are like Che Guevara, you know what I mean? Um, that's, mm-hmm. that, that, that explains it right there. So the Zoomers... Like Kale and David Griscom. Um, we, I'm not. I'm not a Zoomer. You're a Zoomer. <laughs> David, You're a Zoomer. Not a Zoomer. You're a either. Zoomer. <laughs> You're a Zoomer. I'm. I'm the cusp. I am. I'm like my year is literally the the difference between millennial and Zoomer. So I. So you're a Zoomer. No. Yeah, I would just. Own it, Kale. You're a Zoomer for sure. You're a Zoomer. You're, You're a child. You're super you don't remember young. 9/11. You're that means you're a Zoomer. I do remember yeah. 9/11. <laughs> no, you don't. I don't believe you. <laughs> like I remember. Yeah, I remember waking up that morning. I, I, it's not. Um... Yeah, you wake up every morning. <laughs> yeah, but like I, I was not going. To, I had like, uh, I had afternoon. Uh, uh, what is it? preschool or something so I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lord, he doesn't Wait, remember how shit. Old were about... you? Uh, I'm not going to do the math. Yeah, like five. No, so wait, maybe it no, was not. No, you don't remember kindergarten. it. Kindergarten. Not it. Kindergarten. Doesn't remember it. You were There's five. No way. You were born There's in '96. No you know, remember. Oh I, I mean, I think the the it's, it has nothing. He doesn't remember 9/11, Anna. He doesn't remember 9/11. He's not of our in our same generation. Come on, like you, if you don't remember 9/11, yeah. that's like to me, that's the that's the thing. Do you remember 9/11? I mean, let alone. I, I I still I mean I've brought it up a million times. Billie Eilish was born after nine eleven. I that just blows my mind that there are celebrities now in the wow. current moment who were born after nine eleven. Um, that to me is the is the generational divide. Do you remember nine eleven or not? And if you don't remember nine eleven, you are I not do. in my generation. <laughs> that's I, a, that's I, incredible memory. If that's true, Kale. Um, it's, it's a okay, lie. so give me it. give me specifics. Give me specifics about what it's you experienced that told morning. Him no, it's just something I, his parents no. told him happened on that day, and he thinks he remembers it. That's how no. memory works. No, I remember coming down and seeing my mom sitting in front of the TV crying. So, Aww. yeah, I remember it. I, I believe you then. I do. Because stuff like that does, like, yeah, you see your mom crying. That's That's going to stay in your memory. Like, I believe that. Thank Even you. if you're five. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. mom, who's who's Posama Trin Bladen? You know? <laughs> 
But that was the moment He's that Kale decided that he was going to open up all of the like super dense theory books and, right. you know, really immerse himself in understanding what's happening, not just in this country, but in the world. I mean, um, so I, I think to explain like Griscom and I and others, I mean, I don't think it's anything particularly unique. I mean, part of it's that we work, we do this for a job, but I think a lot of it just was that we were at kind of the right age for Bernie 2016, that like the last five years have been like a supercharging moment for people who are, you know, interested in politics that, you know, have some interest in affecting society around them. And, uh, so I, you know, we took this, uh, like it was, it was a perfect storm intellectually and politically, um, that there was this massive, uh, project to get behind and to then try to figure out these problems for the first time. And that the left had tried to figure this out for like the last, the first time the left have tried to figure this out in like the last 50 or 60 years. So this was, um, you know, and then things like Jacobin were highly useful that there was people who were thinking about these things uh, before Bernie that kind of gave us a, a springboard to, to start figuring this out ourselves. Um, but I don't know. Just, I no, but I love it. By the way, we're giving you crap, obviously, like, but we're joking around. I think it's incredible. And when I think about where young men's minds were at when I was in my early 20s. Uh, yeah. I, look, to be honest with you, I've always I've always had an interest in politics. I remember before uh, we did this preemptive war in Iraq, um, the hippie school that I went to had uh, something called Peace Day every year. And for Peace Day, I gave an anti-war speech. But I was nowhere near as intellectual, I'll put it that way, as you and David Griscom are, right? Like it took a while for me to kind of be able to talk about things and understand things the way that you guys do. And and so while we're teasing you guys, mostly you, Kale, um, the fact of the matter is it's super impressive and I love it. I no, mean, it's the it only thing impressive. that really, yeah, it gives me a lot of hope because it means that young people are woke in the right ways. <laughs> you know, they're actually paying attention to what's going yeah. on. And, well, and more importantly... <laughs> Right to his face. <laughs> no, no, I know. But you know what I mean by woke, <laughs> not like the toxic kind. I'm talking about like you're aware of mm. not just what's happening now. You look at history in order to like understand it and process it. And I think that that kind of differentiates your generation from what I experienced in my generation. Because in my generation, there was a lot of we know better. Like we know that what's happening is wrong. These are our opinions. But there wasn't really much processing it through historical events or no. through theory you know we are children of the something called the end of history right um which was mm. a very real thing um and uh we we are we we grew up in the wake of that kind of intellectual revolution which was the end of history um kale and david griscom are uh came of age in a different era in which history came roaring back baby uh, history, mm -hmm. it just it just came roaring back. It made a big comeback. But I just love the idea of like these days, if you're some like young hottie or something, and you like go home with a dude, uh, like off of like some you know dating app that I'm too old to to know about, um, that I don't have access to because they they it's only for the youngs. Um, and if you like get home and like if that man doesn't have banned? like a Jacobin on his, if if, <laughs> if, if, it, if that man doesn't have a Jacobin issue on his coffee table, he is not getting lucky. You know, like it used to be like if you had like the cool sneaks or like if you had a cool car or something. Now it's like, hey man. Does this guy have like you know Capital Volume One in his book in his book uh, bookshelf? Like, man, I'm fucking you know he's getting lucky tonight. 
Yeah, yeah we grew up kill? in the age of <laughs> we grew up in the age of Pip My Ride and Yeah. What was the one about MTV nice Cribs. houses? MTV Cribs. Cribs, yes. Yes. And Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. All pre two thousand eight shit, well which would never be, you know, acceptable today. It was like the two thousand eight crisis totally. is what really changed all that shit. Um I think yeah. the, I mean, with the the '60s generation, like, because the last time there was a left was basically the 1960s, um, and and, yes. and so those people, I mean, especially the first wave of those people, were also immediately immersed in historical and theoretical questions. Um, yes, part of it is, I mean, it's twofold. Part of it is, I think, there was some stuff that was produced that wasn't great i think they ended up kind of i mean their challenge historically was that they were the first left to try to figure out what to do as the left was breaking off from organized labor and and so they tried to understand this moment through well maybe the problem is that it's actually not about the working class then maybe it's not about class maybe maybe we can deal with uh, we can you know advance our political project and and principles through the students through, um, you know, kind of the splintering of the labor movement, the civil rights movement into, you know, let's go into some form of nationalism or black power or into the feminist movement, into the environmental movement. And they all just kind of got fractured into their own separate lanes. They got bought off. They got bought off by capital. I mean, it's that that's that again, the 21 percent. They all got bought off. So that was the whole thing is like, you know, why like keep fighting if you're just if you could just it's so easy to sell out you know now you can't even sell mm-hmm. out you can't sell out even if you wanted to there is no option you know like a lot of that a lot of that shit is is driven by that like it was just like they were just dangling the money right in front of them and it's like shut the fuck up shut the fuck up and you'll get a nice house and like a good comfortable life and you'll be able to give a good life for your kids and like now that's not an option it's just not even for like i think that's part uh, of it i think i think that's especially true for a lot of the people that ended up in academia it's a lot of the movement leaders that had all this experience and knowledge and nowhere to go politics right you know think Mm -hmm. about right right, right, uh, what's his face the the he's the congressman still today he was a fucking black panther (laughs) <laughs> you know like um and he's a he's like some squishy democrat uh what's his name bobby rush or no like what's the guy yeah not rush he's a fucking congressman today still and he was a and he was a black panther like you know hobnobbing with fred hampton and mm-hmm. you know like it's just like how sell out bro and you're gonna you're gonna leave a good life well um, but there was but then there's yeah bobby things. rush yeah well there's bobby rush there's two other factors, though, because there's the thing that Barbara and John Ehrenreich identified uh, in in their piece on the professional managerial class way back when, which was that there actually is quite a bit of tension when you have uh, an academic professor coming to the political meeting alongside some warehouse worker, that these people really do have very different lives. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that these differences can't everywhere and always be overcome in some way that I, I think there are situations where it, it's true that, you know, you can have solidarity between blue collar and white collar workers. Of course, we have to kind of hope that that's true. Um, and I think it does, you know, I think that is true empirically, but there is like that, there has been a ton of tensions around that. And that's been, you know, it's only gotten worse um, of the PMC, the professionals uh, having a, very different life. I mean, they've essentially been the winners of neoliberalism, whereas the vast majority of other working people have gotten screwed over time and time again. And then the other thing is... So they have... Real real quick, I just want to interject on, on that point because I think it was a good one. But 
You know, it's interesting because while they've been the winners of neoliberalism, they're slowly but surely becoming the losers of neoliberalism as more and more wealth, you know, floats to the very top. And so I'm curious if, you know, that trend is going to lead to more solidarity toward blue collar and white collar workers, um, because now their jobs are under threat. I mean, and that includes all white collar jobs. Nando, you mention it all the time. And every time you do, I kind of feel a little bit of panic because we fall under this category. But even people in journalism, right, in in media, those jobs are, I mean, it's incredibly difficult already to find a well-paying job as as a trained journalist. Um, But as media, media conglomerates keep like sucking up all these little companies and outlets under their umbrella as they consolidate, it's just it, it's becoming even more difficult. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, even on places like YouTube, I've noticed that like I'll come across a story that seems fascinating. I want to like watch the video. You click on it and it's like literally a robot, like regurgitating yeah. like an article oh, yeah. or something. Yeah, oh, it's coming, baby. You know, it is. Yep. Right, Jacobin but, weekends will be hosted by a will be hosted by an algorithm very very soon. They'll be able to do the same takes. They'll be like, well, actually, uh, yeah, and it'll be welcome it'll be, to you know. Jacobin weekends. Yeah. I mean, if this pre-tape doesn't Kale. work out, that's kind of what we've been thinking. So, just so you guys know, <laughs> um, but that I mean, so but like to Anna's point, I mean, then things like the DSA or other groups. I mean, this is the this is the bottom falling out for a lot of professional class people. This is, you know, this is why you've had these highly educated, more urban, uh, you know, people that are sometimes in creative class jobs or professional settings um, that have been moving to the left pretty hard and fast over the last few years because they also have been, like, taken under underwater by neoliberalism. Um, but It's also it, why they're doing cancel culture like crazy. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. all doing the cancel culture because of the same thing. You know, it's it's a temper tantrum, essentially, uh, because the capitalism ain't working for them no more. Um, and uh, that's true. And it's-, and it's also, you know, not to be cynical, but I think I mean, I've witnessed it and also experienced it firsthand. Cancel culture can also be used as a tool to cut down your competition and find a, a place in a company that's, you know, still paying a decent amount. Yeah, um, it's it's a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it's, just, it's fiercer and fiercer competition. And so people find means to, to get ahead. And that's just the name of the game. Unfortunately, it's these horrible situations. Um, I think just to, to finish my three, I guess, from before is, I mean, the other thing that like the part of the reason why the new left falls apart, of course, is that there's a massive crisis at the end of the 60s into the 70s, um, the crisis of profitability that eventually leads to yes. the ruling class restructuring the economy towards neoliberalism. And so, you know, effectively, all of the new left lost, but, you know, good ideas, bad ideas. And so now we like in in the wake of Bernie, we're the first to inherit all of this and have to try to figure out basically not just like the last 30, 40 years of information and, and you know, research and, um, po- you know, political thinking that's occurred, but, you know, the entire 150 years that we've had to, like, we didn't, inher- there was no generation before us to help teach us. So we had to learn it all by ourselves. So I don't know. I think it, that's my short answer <laughs> um but um i can i can dip out let's um let's bring in big waz um 
Ooh. And uh Oh nice. Yeah, and then I'll uh yeah, and then we'll bring in Alex Preston a little bit later. Cool. All right. Joining us now is a great friend of the show, great friend of ours, Wozni Lombre, host of Woke Bros with Nando, a podcast that I never miss. In fact, you guys, so, I love your podcast so much that I want to be part of the conversation, and I never want to be part <laughs> Come of on. conversations outside of the work I'm already doing. I mean, I don't mind being called a bro if you guys want to invite me. I'm just saying. <laughs> you, you, you'll um, be on soon. We're booking you within the next three weeks. That's a guarantee. And okay. we're putting it on Jacobin so that the people know this thing is going to happen. I That's love right. it. I love it. All right. So, um, you know... You guys talked about the um, ongoing uh, violence in Gaza, not just last week, or I should say this week, but uh, the week before. And I just wanted to make a quick comment because, Waz, you had mentioned, you know, and I don't think you're wrong for noticing this. I think that this is something that many people notice. Like when you're critiquing the Israeli government, it feels like, and, and it, it's definitely true, in my opinion, that you can't critique it the way that you would critique any other right wing government. Right. Like because of how people identify with the state of Israel and how honestly, I think a big part of it is just this very successful propaganda campaign that would immediately label anyone anti-Semitic if they had legitimate criticism of the Israeli government. But the Israeli government is not necessarily representative of Israelis. It's certainly not representative of all Jews around the world. Um, it has nothing to do with your feelings toward Jewish people or the very existence of Israel itself. It's just valid criticism and critique. Um, and I'm done with it. Like, I'm done personally with feeling like I need to walk on eggshells when critiquing that government because I want to critique it the same way I would critique my own government you know, with fearlessness, uh, with receipts, with actual evidence mm -hmm. to the points that I'm trying to make. Um, so I just wanted to quickly comment on that because I thought that was an interesting point that you brought up. Let's do a thought exercise. Let's just say okay. somebody critiques, say, I don't know, the CIA <laughs> and the torture program and waterboarding and black sites. And now let's let's pretend somebody says, Say me. I say, whoa, you can't do that. That's an indictment on black Americans. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody would say this. Anybody who made that argument would be fucking laughed out of the room. When a freaking right wing regime or right wing government goes out and commits atrocity, atrocities, excuse me, upon people in a foreign land or wherever they do it. Uh, that's just what it is. It's an atrocity. Um, that's yeah. not to say that the Jews haven't been historically oppressed people in Europe for centuries. That's not to say that. But when the Israeli government commits an atrocity against Palestinian people in Gaza, that's what it is. It's not anti-Semitic. It's not any of that. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, when you equate the government with the people, the citizens of Israel, then you're being actually anti-Semitic to, to, you know, sort of posit the stance that everything is all one. It's not true. Like you would never say that the craziness that we did in Vietnam, the bombs that we dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's an indictment on Jewish Americans. 
it, it like it, it doesn't make any sense when the American government or military carries out horrible acts. Nobody says that's an indictment of the American people. So why are we doing this in the reverse with Israel? It's just a weird thing to to see people try to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN for saying that we can now offer, you know, for saying something like, you know, we offer solidarity, uh, you know, for Palestinians and, and hope for a free Palestine from the river to the sea, which is something that uh, Amir Haas said on our show last week. Um, and I wonder if. And I won't Mark be Lamont saying was, on this show this week. I'll just but, say that. But Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN um, in 2018 uh, for, yeah. for those comments. Um, I thought it was remarkable at the time. Obviously, like it was very, um, it was a very indicative episode of a lot of things, for, you know, small thing, but like a lot of the sort of right wing free speech crusaders were nowhere to be found to defend uh, Mark Lamont <laughs> Hill's uh, right to free speech. Um, certainly not the. You know, the woke brigade was not like, you know, CNN's firing a black man uh, for these things. Like a lot of this, it was very ridiculous, a lot of things. But I wonder if had he said those comments yesterday or, or the day before in the wake of the latest violence in in Gaza, that he would be fired. And I don't know that the answer is yes. I don't know that he would have. And, and I think that that's maybe a small a small example of just how a little bit of the discourse has changed, uh, even, mm-hmm. even in a short period of time, because that was not that long ago. I think that was in 2018. Um, so, so there is, there, there is some changes on, on this topic for sure. There are certain stories that have come out during this more recent flare up in violence that like, I followed the story closely, like, you know, there are certain elements that have now come out that previously would not have been reported that weren't really posted on social media. You know, I'll give you a specific example. There was a tweet that went viral about how Palestinian families in the Gaza Strip will immediately huddle into the living room together. So if there's uh, an Israeli airstrike that hits their building, they all die together. And uh, yeah. the New York Times has heard, a podcast called The Daily, and I was listening I to that uh, just yesterday. Remarkable. Dude, it, it was, was such a good podcast. <sighs> I was crying while listening to yeah, it. it. I was, was walk- I was on my walk or whatever, and when she started talking about her family and, and what they do, and, and also when she specifically was talking about her younger siblings who don't really understand what's going on, I mean, it's how do you listen to that and not criticize the Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. How do you not criticize that? I think that well, it's, the, it's morally past, reprehensible never, to not criticize it. Right. But in the past, just in America, I mean, this was it's common to hear Palestinian voices in media outside of the United States. Um, it wasn't very common. Like, it is inconceivable for, like, if there were the equivalent of the daily podcast by the New York Times in during the Second Intifada, say, in the early 2000s, they're not interviewing, uh, you know, they're not giving like tons of airtime to some 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 little girl in Gaza. Like, no way. It just it, it was just inconceivable. Um, so th- th- I, 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 too, noticed that I did listen to that to that episode and, and it was it was brutal. Um, but it was what? also kind yeah. of, I think, a, a sign of how things are changing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Um, yesterday on. um my TYT Twitch show, shouts to Wozni and the Wozniians out there if you're listening. 
Um, I read an interview that Barry Weiss did with this Torres guy from Richie from, Torres, Richie Torres oh, yeah. from the Bronx, Man. who yeah. she took great pains before the interview to say he's from the projects, grew up poor. Yes. yes. He's Afro Latinx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's Afro, gay. Afro Latinx. Yeah. And he's gay. So clearly yeah. everything that comes after this is unassailable, Libs, obviously, because a gay guy who's a black Dominican um, and grew up in the projects could never say something that was stupid about Israel. And right. he goes up there and says, oh, there's a <laughs> bunch of propaganda being spewed, blah, 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 about Israel. I'm like, bro, we've been propagandizing the opposite for decades, yep. forever. There's like people are now pointing out that Israel does horrible things to the Palestinians in Gaza for the first time ever in mass media. But it's not propaganda. It's like it's a correction of the record. Uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Richie Torres was already saying that kind of stuff in his campaign. And it was like, it's like, what are you? What? <laughs> He's insane. This Where's guy? this coming from? <laughs> you know, like, well, I mean, a per- another example, by the way, is uh, Ned Price, who's a spokesperson for the State Department. Right. He's gay. Um, I remember when Biden had appointed him. It was like a big story. Like, ooh, first ever gay guy who's going to serve in this particular role. I don't care. I just personally don't care. What I do care about, though, is how he handles questions from reporters about the murders of Palestinian children. Yeah. He oh, didn't, didn't have the like ability to condemn it. He couldn't yeah. even condemn it. No. It's not a difficult thing to do, okay? Even if you are, you know, complimentary toward the Israeli government, even as they're doing all of this, it should not be difficult to condemn the deaths of yeah. civilian children or children, period. You know, it's just like I'm I'm done with the no, 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 this is a good guy or this is a good person because they happen to be part of a disenfranchised group. But you can be part of a disenfranchised group and also be an awful person like that exists. And so like, don't don't try to sell the American people on, hey, this person might do horrendous things, but they happen to be gay. I don't care. Don't care. Well, one of, one of the things that Noah Colwyn talked in uh, in Waz and I's uh, talk with him on the Woke Wars podcast is that, you know, for the first time, also one of the things that we're seeing is um, coverage of Palestinian resistance to the Israeli violence. Um, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit um, this week. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, labor issues on this very show and how the most powerful uh, tool that regular people have is organized labor and the strike and things like that. I found it very interesting that this week the uh, Palestinians called for a general strike. On Tuesday, the Palestinian, uh, the Higher Arab Monitoring Committee um, called a general strike, and it was remarkable how many people uh, joined it. You know, um, it 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 it. This article in Haaretz talks about various different sectors that uh, joined the strike, but they focus first on these on these cleaners in um, in uh, in an Israeli city that that are you know pal- mostly Palestinian, right? Palestinians. There's 20 percent of the citizens of Israel are Arabs, and um, you know they provide a lot of the the labor, essentially, like the the and so they they underwent this general strike, and um, the residents of the city. Um, to the cleaners' strike response was, 
Quote, this is the perfect time to fix this distortion and start to employ only Jews or Arabs who are loyal to the state of Israel and declare so openly, one resident wrote to City Hall. Another added, fire them. It's identifying with terror. And another raged, now employ only Jews and they can go to hell. Only one resident countered these comments, writing, people are losing their homes and their lives these days, but Modi'in's, this the city, garbage hasn't been collected. Too bad that the garbage that comes out of people's mouths is harder to collect but to, to sort of illustrate the um just the, the power of the strike which again think of like palestinians some of the most disenfranchised powerless people in the world um when they organize collectively even in within their limited kind of power station they can exercise a great amount of power um they wrote the article continued um Avi Mizrahi, who's the chairman of the Union of Cleaning Companies, who is also the employer of these workers, said some had wanted to come to work, but when they got to checkpoints, they were subjected to pressure not to break the strike. Quote, we felt their absence all over the country. We can't work without them. They're part of us. This is their employer. And then furthermore, in Bet Shemesh, which is experiencing a construction boom, all the cranes were silent on Tuesday. One crane operator said that many operators are Arabs who were striking and added, if we, if we would all fight the way for workers' rights, maybe we would achieve some, something. The Israeli Builders Association said Palestinian workers had observed the strike with only 150 of the 65,000 Palestinian construction workers coming to work in Israel. This paralyzed building sites, causing losses estimated at 130 million shekels or nearly $40 million. And I thought that that was just a, um, a remarkable thing. It just shows just, you know, putting your tools down and withholding your labor like is ultimately, you know, even in this kind of neoliberalized world, even um, amongst people who are incredibly oppressed, like Palestinians are, that the power of the strike is just, it's just immense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the only thing that the power responds to, right? Power only responds to power. Like, if you're costing these guys millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, they're going to be forced to act. Because... Uh, Believe it or not, even rich people don't like to lose money, Nando. <laughs> so they're going to respond to that, you know. Um, and, yeah. and and it's crazy because that's kind of all they have. You have to band together collectively, individually. What can you really accomplish against something as powerful as the Israeli state or, you know, the American government by proxy? Like that's that's going to be tough to go up against in the, um, individually. But if you can get if, – if workers are banding together – and sending a message loud and clear, um, then that's a beautiful thing, in my opinion. All right. Why don't we move on to um, our next story? Uh, because we do talk quite a bit about the PRO Act here over at Jacobin, over at weekends. Um, and we at first had about five Senate Democrats who were holding out on the legislation. Now there are three. I want to mm. talk about one of them, and that's Senator Mark Kelly. So. At this point, there are three Senate Democrats who have not signed on to the PRO Act. Now, as we know, the PRO Act is an important uh, piece of legislation that would uh, expand labor protections. It's something that we've talked about in great detail on this show. Uh, Nando did a great decode segment on it, so make sure you check that out. 
One of the Democratic senators who's against it or hasn't um, signed on to it yet is Senator Mark Kelly. And Ryan Grimm over at The Intercept did a fantastic report talking about some of the conflicts of interest at play here, some of the potential uh, conflicts that could corrupt uh, <laughs> Senator Kelly's decision in whether he supports this legislation or not. So Ryan Grimm writes that Senator Mark Kelly enjoyed a five-year paid seat on the board of the restaurant franchise company Landry's, which owns eateries like Morton's, the Steakhouse and Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Also, Kelly served on Landry's board from February of 2013 to August of 2017 and disclosed compensation of more than $5,000. There are no public records indicating exactly how much he was paid, but Securities and Exchange Commission filings show that in 2009, the last year Landry's filed SEC disclosures, uh, board members had been paid about $120,000 annually in stock and cash, which would put Kelly's total compensation north of half a million dollars, $500,000 for the part-time work. And so mm. there's more detail into this and just how, um, you know, how involved he was with the restaurant industry and, and how much of a role that could be playing in his decision here. But I wanted to bring you guys in and, and get your thoughts. How do you well, apply you know, for a job it, like that to get paid yeah. $500,000 for part-time work? That's pretty nice work if you could find it. That's right. I mean, that's like, again, I mean, it just, it's, it's the league. We, we talk a lot about campaign donations and, you know, obviously that's a factor in, um, in politicians deciding what to, to legislate on. But the other thing is just that is just straight up. Like who's paying me, you know, like who's paying me yep. directly, not donating to my campaign, like who's putting money in my pocket, <laughs> you know, like we don't, we don't call that uh, bribery, but it's, I mean, it's just, it's what it is. It's, it's legalized bribery straight up. It is. And look, this is stuff that he was involved in prior to getting elected in the Senate, but this it's, I think that voters need to be a little more, um, aware of previous job. Like I, like with Trump, for instance, one of the talking points that you would hear from Trump supporters was, well, he's a successful businessman. And I think Americans are conditioned to believe that, first of all, he wasn't a successful businessman, so let's get that out of the way. But like, for those who believe that he was, right, we got to get past thinking that successful businessmen would make great leaders for a country. They're actually the opposite of that. I mean, all Trump did was use the office of the presidency to enrich himself, uh, find ways to transition money from the federal government over to his personal properties. And in the case of Mark Kelly, you have someone who's uh, who has a history working for the restaurant industry and making quite a bit of money in the restaurant industry. And they're not just looking out for their buddies. They're also looking out for their future, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mark Kelly is thinking about what he's going to do once he's done serving in Congress, if you can call it that. And so it's that revolving door. And it's also the fact that these lawmakers are able to invest in individual stocks uh, while they're in Congress. It's insane. It's absolutely I don't want insane. 
any successful businessman to be in no. politics. I only want agreed <laughs> unemployed losers um, who you know are estranged from their son and are trying to shuck a Eugene Debs documentary that no one wants to watch. Yes, I'm talking about Bernie Sanders, incredibly <laughs> like just a deadbeat guy in his 30s who um, had achieved nothing in his life. Uh, then uh, all of a sudden becomes the mayor of Burlington and is the greatest politician that we've had in our lifetime. So yeah, the the model is be on an be an unemployed loser. That's the guy I'm supporting, not any successful businessman. That's the last person I would ever want to support. And to that point, I wish I wish voters could understand that like a board member um on some restaurant conglomerate has nothing in common with the people who actually work at the restaurant, right? Meaning the vast majority of his right. constituency are people like those restaurant workers. And he is mm-hmm. against them. <laughs> Period. He has he, is, he doesn't yep. give a damn about what these people need and what they want because he's a freaking board member. And you're gonna elect this guy to be senator from your state? Like it it just doesn't make any sense. He's of the class of people who are oppressing us. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, let me give you more. Um, there's so many good tidbits in this piece, so I, I highly recommend you guys read it. Um, but I'll give you a few more details right now. So, for instance, in 2015, um, in the midst of Kelly's board service, Landry's uh, rolled out a forced arbitration agreement to its workforce requiring them to sign away the ability to unite as a class in a lawsuit and agree to have any disputes handled by arbitration. Um, and so obviously the PRO Act is uh, not favorable to that method of employees holding uh, their employers accountable. Also, another leading industry opponent is the National Restaurant Association, of which Landry's is a member. And when it comes to the uh, pretty bitter defeat of the $15 an hour minimum wage, the Restaurant Association was really front and center in ensuring that it was defeated. So all of this plays a role in the quality of life and the quality of, of you know, our workplaces. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of the like ties that these individuals have to businesses as opposed to the ties they have to their own constituents, right? Like he's not going to look out for the best interests of his constituents when there's money involved, there's money on the line, and the people that he's closest to are the very individuals who are fighting against our best interests. Amen. No, it's it's uh, it was a great story by Ryan Grimm. Um, you know, it's it's it'll be interesting to see if, um, you know, again, I, I I'm not like I'm not saying that the pro act is going to happen. I'm not even I'm not even saying that there's an above 50 percent chance it's going to happen. I'm not even saying that there's a 20 percent chance that it's going to happen. But it's probably closer than you would think, given the size of that legislation and the the historic nature. I mean, it would be just, it, it would be just a total game changer. It would be the most significant piece of legislation since, since the 1935 uh, Wagner act um, for, for the help of workers. So the fact that it's even like just a few people, like a few human beings away, you know, from, from potentially passing is just, it's, it's remarkable. Um, again, it's, I'm not saying that those barriers are easy to overcome, but this is the kind of thing that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, just, it wouldn't even be like in the discussion. No shot. Something like this. I mean, mm-hmm. we haven't really been in the discussion in in a long, long time. Not in Bill Clinton's Democratic Party. No. Yeah. Certainly not. That's true. Or in Barack Obama's. 
<laughs> or you, you mean Tim Geithner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, Alex Press will be joining us to have a discussion about Amazon and some of the, uh, you know, interesting aspects of Amazon that she's learned through her excellent labor reporting over at Jacobin. We'll be right back. Joining us now for our interview is staff writer over at Jacobin, Alex Press. She covers labor issues. She's on the labor beat. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So let me start off by asking you about a statement you made during an interview. Um, uh, why am I forgetting the name of the podcast? Hold on. A World second. to Win. A World to Win. Thank you. Sorry. I'd like subscribe to it. I don't know why I forgot it. But anyway. Let me start off by asking you a question about a statement you made on a world to win that I thought was really interesting and I wanted you elaborate wanted you to elaborate on. You mentioned how some of these Amazon warehouses that have already begun to automate and they are they've already begun to implement robots tend to have more worker injuries. And I want to know why. Why is that? Because the whole idea of having this automation is supposedly meant to make the jobs of these workers easier, but it turns out that they're actually getting injured more often. Yeah. So there's a couple reasons. So the first is that in the warehouses where they have these um, robots more integrated into the operations on the floor, um, a lot of what they're doing is doing the sort of picking off of shelves and moving goods around. And so the workers then instead of walking all around the warehouse, walking like 12 miles per shift, they're basically standing in one place and doing very repetitive um, motions. And so the, a lot of these are the injuries you get from that, from just this repetitive motion for 10 hour shift. Um, the other thing is that, you know, these robots are pretty big. And so if you get into any kind of, uh, I guess, altercation, if you actually, you know, get, um, I don't know, there's just more danger there. It's a huge piece of machinery. And so there are accidents that happen um, so that's part of it. But a lot of it really is this this repetitive motion injury that's going on. Um, and I mean, that's the thing is like robots don't necessarily mean better work or less work for people if they're being sort of thrown out on a floor for the sake of increasing profits and exploitation. The boss is going to find new ways to make the most of your labor. And so sometimes that'll mean even worse things for you. Um, so, you know, it's once again, the promise of technology depends on who owns that technology. Right. And towards what ends it's going. I think well, it's, since um, since right. Amazon is saving money with um, robots, um, are any of those savings being filtered down to the people who remain? <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> uh, no, we're all laughing. <laughs> um, I so it's going to Bezos, right? I don't know if you guys saw this, but he recently reporting came out from this new book about Amazon that Bezos has not only a yacht but a yacht for his yacht. Um, and that's that's so that he can land a helicopter near the yacht, not on the yacht, but on the support yacht. So that's where the money is going. Um, and, you know, to be clear, like, for example, Amazon obviously has gotten a lot of criticism for the working conditions, especially in the warehouses. And it finally has gotten to the point where they have rolled out a big PR um, sort of campaign about what they're doing in response. And, you know, just this week, they published their press release about it. 
And they touted all these different programs, which are really horrifyingly dystopian and involve um, things like Amazon is the term that they're using, you know, like these kiosks that take you through guided meditation. All of that is crazy and we can talk about it. But at the end of the day, the amount of money they're spending on what they're calling these safety projects is, um, I think, $300 million, which given the profits in the first quarter of this company were over $100 billion is, I think, about like 0.2% of those profits are going towards increasing safety. And it's even a question of whether these programs increase the safety. Um, So, you know, no, none of that money is going to anybody's pockets, nor is it going to making their lives better. Well, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll talk I, about the um, Go ahead. Sorry, I go just ahead, wanted Anna. to like um, mention, you mentioned the super yacht, and I just wanted to give the audience some numbers on that yacht because it's an estimated $500 million yacht. And apparently, even though it's this giant 417 foot yacht, um, it's not large, it, like it doesn't have the ability to have a helicopter land on it. So yes, the um, support yacht, as it's referred to, uh, will be... <laughs> You know, going along for the ride just so helicopters can land on it. It's it's unbelievable. Well, I and, was just um, in Miami. I was just in Miami and I was out on a boat and I uh, drove past or whatever you call it, sailed past. Um, it wasn't a sailboat, but we were we drove past uh, Mark Cuban's yacht, hmm. which is about that size. Also has a support yacht. Um, and the name of Mark Cuban's yacht, friend of the show, is <laughs> the Fountainhead. Wow. Oh <laughs> it was like the <laughs> lamest fucking yacht name I could ever imagine. Incredible. Yeah. That was a, um, great, a great lengths you went to to avoid admitting you were actually on Mark Cuban's yacht. I was on my I was invited. I was invited. You know. Yeah. <laughs> he watches the show every week, I know. Um he was he's a fan. Um, Mark, reach and, out, uh, reach out. I'll give you my Venmo. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um I think it's worth uh, taking a step back because you you you're on the labor beat and you but you, obviously when you're on the labor beat in 2021 Amazon is kind of the company to look at because I, I don't think people realize just how much the pandemic has transformed Amazon as a company. I think it's like doubled in 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 valuation um, since COVID hit. Can you talk about just like the sheer size of Amazon, like how big it's, how much it's growing? How much? How many people it's hiring? Um, it, like all the craziness of 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 the past year. Yeah. So the way I describe it is, I quote, um, you know, a classic source for me, a Wall Street analyst um, who early in mm. the pandemic said that coronavirus was like a growth hormone for Amazon. So it was already a massive company, right? It was one of the biggest companies in, on the planet, one of the biggest employers. Um, but and I was already, you know, writing about Amazon all the time before the pandemic. But it's really hard to comprehend just how much it grew. So in sort of the, I think the first 10 months of the pandemic, just in the United States, Amazon hired about 500,000 people. Um, The New York Times tried to find through history a precedent for this. And they said, you know, maybe in the lead up to World War II, aircraft carriers were hiring that amount of the population to start building new planes, new um things for the war. And so that's sort of the only precedent right in the private sector. It's still only the second largest employer. Walmart is still number one in the US. uh, But it's on a trajectory to just surpass Walmart and surpass basically anything. And then I mean, Amazon also is unique in that it controls so many different parts of our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's like everywhere you turn, it's there, which I think is really unique. And also is why people say it's, you know, violating antitrust laws, because it's controlling so many different sectors and parts of the retail 
market. Um, but yeah, I mean, Amazon, basically, if you imagine the pandemic shutting down all these brick and mortar stores, it's like it funneled everything to Amazon, right? Any dollars that would have gone elsewhere, both because other stores shut down, went to Amazon, and then also because people were stuck at home and Amazon's model is so, you know, the thing that they've done so well is get delivery to your door. Um, it was like, the you know, Bezos couldn't have engineered a better year for himself. Yeah. But I haven't read this, that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, but this is good though, right? Like that Amazon is getting bigger and Bezos is becoming more powerful and ever looming over all of our lives. He's he's a benevolent billionaire is what I hear. This can't be anything but great things yeah. for the American people. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, if there's anything we know, it's that the monsters that America creates when they get more power over the planet, there's only good things to come. You know, the future's so bright yes. that we all need shades at this point. <laughs> yeah, Russian oligarchs are bad. American oligarchs are good. That's right. Great. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. But, and Bezos but, is just no, I read a that... cool guy, obviously. If you know anything yeah. about him, he's just a, he's a classic. He's from Miami Easy. like me. He's from Miami like me. We hit the club every once in a while. We go on Mark Cuban's yacht. Um, oh, it's, it's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the brick and mortar because I think the, um, the sort of common... Uh, interpretation is that because uh, online is more and more a bigger part of our lives, um, that uh, the experience of shopping online is so much easier than going to the store that uh, Amazon is taking up a lot of their uh, market share. But like what I've read recently is that they're now also trying to take over the actual uh, brick and mortar store experience by Mm -hmm. buying up a bunch of actual stores. And they have shit like, you know, uh, shopping carts that check like that you you put shit into the shopping cart and it scans automatically so you can just walk right out of the store with all the shit you know like it's already mm-hmm. kind of like pre it's autom- like there's no need for anyone to work in the store it's like this is a giant warehouse that just by walking in you can just take a bunch of stuff kind of like a to- uh, toys r us shopping spree uh in 1995 um and then just walk right out of the store like they're there it really feels like their ambition is to take over every sector of the economy, no matter what it is. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, they purchased Whole Foods a few years ago, which is a huge acquisition. And it's because they'd been trying to get into the supermarket game for a while. Um, in part, they've been tra- testing out these technologies you're talking about to sort of comical ends in that, you know, they would have their own employees test these out in prototype stores that were sort of close to the public. And like when they brought toddlers or babies in, it completely messed up the algorithm. They couldn't tell what was going on. Um, but yeah. ultimately, ultimately they've now, you know, basically perfected it with the goal being not only that you, yeah, you don't have to spend any money on labor, which of course is great for any capitalist, right? They want less of that variable capital. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, if you don't have a credit card or an Amazon account, you're not welcome. And so it's perfect. It's a gated community. And they're hoping that, you know, every store could be like that, where, you know, it's always been true that stores want you to buy stuff. But now it's ensured that you can't possibly get anything without already having, say, an Amazon Prime account. Right. And that's the big goal. That's the cycle that Amazon has is get you to sign up in some way for it's whether it's Amazon Prime or otherwise get your information in there. And they know that mm-hmm. from there you're hooked, right? And so, you know, now they have 200 yeah. million Prime subscribers and it's only growing. Um, but it's Jeez. totally right. It's totally right that they're, I mean, they're trying to take over both sort of physical stores, but also just new sectors of the economy, right? I mean, just this week, um, it, the, there was reporting about them making an offer of, I think, like $9 billion to purchase MGM. 
Um, and so, yeah. and, and so then that could be on Damn. your prime viewing all of those titles. Um, and so, yeah, the James we, Bond franchise, baby. Exactly. And so Amazon just wants Love to, Daniel it, Craig. <laughs> it wants to own the world. So, okay. Like, Obviously, we know how negative this is for workers, especially when Amazon becomes one of the only places you could even find a job at this point because they've, <laughs> you know, sucked up all of the retail um, jobs, brick and mortar jobs or, or companies, I should say. But what about the consumer end of it, right? Mm. Because I think that while consumers are enjoying the uh, convenience that Amazon is providing at this very moment, the thought of what Nando just described, you know, going into this supermarket and just throwing things into a cart and walking out. I mean, it might sound convenient to people, but I know that like self-checkout is, in my opinion, a hellish experience to go through. <laughs> like I actually want a human, I want human interaction when I'm buying something. Like I want, I want to talk to someone. I want to ask them how their day is going. Like that interpersonal experience is good. If I need advice on a product that I'm buying, right? You can talk to the cashier, you can talk to a worker yeah. in the store. Like I don't think people are really taking in how much this is going to destroy even like the consumer experience that Americans think they love so much, right? Like, um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Amazon's an anti-social enterprise, like at every level, right? So obviously, I think that's true about the labor and the working conditions and the reliance on surveillance and exploitation. But it's also true on the consumer level, right? In that, you know, not to idealize um, America at all, the last thing I want to do, but like, having stores and places to go is something that's valuable for people. And we are mm -hmm. already seeing what happens when that's not the case. You know, people are alienated, they're isolated. And of course, then there's no jobs at all. Um, and that's exactly what Amazon wants, right? That is the future that they are taking you to. And while they sort of obsessively tout that they're good for consumers, this is their sort of motto that it's the consumer is number one, the customer is all that matters. Um, you know, the reality is that Amazon you know, if you give something control over every possible market and you're relying on them, they can then set the terms, yeah. right? I mean, we see this with other platform companies like Uber. You know, at first, the prices are very low so that you sign up and you get hooked. And all that money also, of course, is coming from VC backers because the United States sort of creates these companies because there's so much money flowing from the top among these super rich people that they can just subsidize these companies until they've burrow deep into the marrow of society, right? They're deep in your bones, you're reliant on them, and then they can jack up prices or they can do whatever they want. I mean, mm -hmm. Amazon, this yeah. is part of the argument about antitrust with Amazon is that it's not actually great for the consumer as far as the retail operation. They're actually using the data from third-party sellers on the website to create their own brands um, and they're sort of pushing theirs, even if it's not the best um, sort of quality or it's not the lowest price. And consumers are getting screwed over, right? And so no matter which way you want to think about it, you know, giving all of your power to this private company is just not going to end well and it's already going poorly. And then that's, you know, not even to mention the sort of um, reification of this model where a private company owns everything and there's no public say in the matter at all. I mean, a company like Amazon, when it gets this big, it controls the state at every level, right? And so it's very hard to dislodge it once it's yeah. there. It's funny. I think people just don't realize that because a, a a product like Uber is everywhere and everyone knows about it, they assume it must make it must be make a bank of bajillions of dollars. It's like you know, Uber loses billions of dollars a year. And famously, Amazon frustrated a lot of its investors for forever. Um, 
by not by purposefully not turning a profit for like the longest time, like an absurdly long time. Amazon was an unprofitable company, and it's and it's it's what you're talking about that like they need to undercut to burrow themselves into society, and like speaking like thinking about like that, you know that Amazon is an anti-social company. I and this is like an anecdote, but uh, a friend of mine uh, is a headhunter, like we're, like corporate headhunter, you know, like uh, uh, does executive searches, and one of the projects that he worked on was to uh, replace the head of Amazon Studios. And they were having a hard time finding that person for two reasons. One, which is a funny one, that Jeff Bezos does not allow any of his executives to fly in business class. And mm-hmm. for a studio head, that is, wow. you know, that is, enough. <laughs> he, of course, Jeff Bezos flies. Private, of course. Uh, but he has his right. own no, jet. No one, he has no a companion his... yacht, the guy. Yeah. Like he has a companion <laughs> yacht. Like, come on. <laughs> but, so that was one uh, thing, but the other the other thing is that when Amazon got into the entertainment business and 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 created a Hollywood studio, Jeff Bezos assumed that you could you could suck the creativity out of the process of creating a show or a movie or whatever. That you, there must be some formula, there must be some like algorithm, there must be, and so he created like a like a series of spreadsheets that like all these executives had to like. You know, a show had to have this, 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 that, and this, and that, and that, and like a, a very kind of structured um, thing. And if not, if it didn't have all those things, it wouldn't be a hit. Of course, like you can't do that. Like, it was, you know, it, like, and you're not exaggerating. It was like 14 categories, and the executives yeah. had to explain in a written essay, basically a narrative oh sheet, why they were, you know, if this series was lacking one of those things, they had to explain why. Um, so it's just nightmare stuff. I mean, he's like a robot. Yeah. He is capital embodied. Um, and yes, that's that's the right way. That's what I was trying. He is ca- he is the human form of capital. Like he's just that. That's the way he thinks. It's like take over, take over, take over, take over. Quantify, quantify. Like suck the life out of everything. It's just it really is kind of dystopian. Right. But totally. I do I, I do want to pose the question to you guys. Like, I need a potato ricer. Should I not buy it from Amazon? No, I don't think like I think like pushing it on like r- people to do consumption habits is like not the right way to mm. think about it. Almost anything, you know, I just mm-hmm. I just never think that that's a solution to anyone's problems. Well, um, it's, it's I, not I very know. effective. It does not have a good track record, especially if these are if there's no boycotts or being coordinated by the workforce itself. Of course, in American history, there have been successful boycotts. This was sort of Cesar Chavez's famous thing with the farm workers was boycotting grapes. Um, that actually did put pressure, but w- especially with a company like Amazon, you're just never going to be able to boycott it out of existence. I mean, for example, right now we are using Amazon Web Services. They control yeah. the entire backbone of the Internet. The, literally the majority of the Internet is Amazon infrastructure. So even if you don't buy your good, you're still using it every time you go on Zoom. Um, you're using it every time you watch Netflix, so on and so forth. So there's just Damn. no way to boycott Amazon. Um and I, it also reinforces the something that these platform companies really rely on, which is they want you to only sort of approach them as consumers, right? Um, they and mm. I think they're very unique in history, or at least sort of innovating on this on the sense of brand loyalty, and that you're so deeply tied to these brands that they actually wield that connection that they have to their consumers against politicians in a way that's really powerful, mm. right? Um, in that Amazon doesn't even have to lobby. They, you know, they live rent free in every elected official's head when they're thinking about like, are we going <laughs> to let Amazon come to town and build a data center or a warehouse? 
Um, are we going to regulate their, say, delivery driver model? You know, they every politician thinks about the fact that their constituents are going to freak out if whatever they do, whatever regulation they impose, slows down the speed of delivery or mm. prevents the promise of jobs from coming to town. Um, so I just, yeah, I really discourage people thinking that, like, oh, you know, if I just skip ordering my, uh, like, Peloton via Amazon, then, like, I'm helping. That is not where we have to act. We actually have to act at the political level and collectively um, if you ever want to build any kind of... Yeah. All right, hold on, Alex. Let me renew my promises. <laughs> yeah, also, don't feel guilt. Like, just the, the guilt, I think, is just not a, a, a helpful thing, you know? It's just right. not a helpful. The shaming, the guilt, like not oh, even you white guilt. Uber, white guilt oh. side, isn't it? No. <laughs> yeah, I only have Catholic guilt. Okay, so you know. You know, before we get to um, Bessemer and just how honestly vile Amazon is in crushing any unionization effort. I did want to ask about something that you referenced earlier in the interview about this new Amazon. Um, yes. project going on because yes. uh, it's obviously, I mean, for people paying close attention, it's a PR stunt and it's a way to make it appear as though Amazon isn't as vicious to its workers as it really is. Um, but, you know, I just think about the idea of forced meditation, like my boss <laughs> forcing me to meditate. It makes me want to rip my hair out. Just so like the Buddha first, said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. So first explain what Amazon is and why you think Amazon is engaging in this new program. OK, um, I am going to do something unusual, which is I just pulled up the press release because I really don't think paraphrasing can, can convey how strange this is. Um, yes. So Amazon guides employees through mindfulness practices in individual interactive kiosks at buildings. During shifts, employees can visit Amazon stations and watch short videos featuring easy-to-follow well-being activities, including guided meditations, positive affirmations, calming scenes with sounds, and more. That is... I, I just like the image of, like, a, like, you know, some, like, you know, working stiff who's, like, you know, breaking his fucking back, uh, lugging uh, boxes up and down in fulfillments that are just, like... Stopping one second, just like plug into like a kiosk while everyone's like, you know, while activities running behind him and he's going through some like, you know, while they're they're not allowed to go to the bathroom. Right. Like that's right. That's not you can't do that. You can do a, a positive affirmation like, you know, just think of all those boxes and how they're getting to people like the feeling that they have when you deliver those boxes to their home and they they get to their front step and there's four different Amazon boxes right there. That that, that That's a good feeling. Yeah, because because reaching some level of Zen couldn't happen from. Better pay, better working conditions. Like, you know, I think about around this time, tax time, like I think about growing up as a little kid before I ever had my own job. Um, the look, the like the faces and the happiness I would see out of people when they got their tax return. <laughs> like everybody was always so damn happy talking about what they was going to buy, the bill that they, they were going to pay X, Y and Z because they got tax th their tax return. It's just like, yo, pay the people you want them to be happy, pay them. You know, uh, it's, it's just ridiculous that they would even, you know, the lack of self-awareness that it takes after you do some union busting the way that they, they did. And they come out and say, no, but we got meditation for them. It's I mean, just insane. Yeah. It's like it's funny and it's insane, but it's also, a I think, a really useful example of how this company operates. Again, this idea that like Bezos as capital embodied, right? Like the model here is not about 
caring about people that these are not seen as people, these workers, right? They are seen as machinery. And I mean, there's like, you know, in capital, of, of course, I should mention, since it's we're on the Jacobin show, you know, in Marxist capital, he talks about in the factories that the owners want to shape workers around the needs of the machinery and the profit motive. And it always evokes this image to me of like a worker who has one arm super developed and the other is like withered away. Right. And he's falling Mm -hmm. over because that's he's used. That's his place on the assembly line. And that is how Amazon views its workers. It views them as how can I shape these human beings into the most productive, effective and silent tools, right? So that they do not speak up and that no one hears what's going on. And so what they really want is, you know, there've been, there's been reporting about managers saying that you just need to get into the flow. They tell workers, you know, basically just vibe, just get to the point where you're just good vibe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baby. Just be wow. one with the rhythms of the warehouse. And that's what they want. And so, yeah, nowhere in this document at all about their sort of uh, their response to complaints about working conditions. Is there any discussion about having lower productivity quotas? Is there any discussion about raises? Nothing like that. It's just about how are we going to reshape these workers? And so the the sort of innovation here is admitting that these workers' minds are not right. They are stressed. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to innovate even more. I just love, you know, it's true because the Silicon Valley uh, tech capitalist thing, they're all, all these guys are like, you know, new agey types uh, who believe in all this shit. So it's just funny that that's like what their solution to these problems like just, hey, man, uh, you know, transcendental meditation like David Lynch, you know, like, uh, you know, like they all these guys right. do that shit all the time. So, uh, you know, that's funny that they're that that's their that's their go-to solution to to the problem of like yeah like workers just like shitting themselves on the on the in the fulfillment centers yeah they forget right. that like and meditation doesn't work if your boss is forcing you to meditate like, right not right exactly i remember i remember going through some stuff in my personal life and like people telling me before i was ready to even consider meditation like you should meditate you should meditate you should meditate it would drive me crazy um <laughs> but that was in my personal context i can't imagine that in um, the context of something that I rely on for my livelihood. I mean, there's like a level of coercion involved in that, that, you know, shouldn't be discounted, but it's not just meditation. There's also literal physical activity that's being proposed here, right? So stretching to make sure that you don't hurt your body as you're doing, um, really difficult manual labor in this warehouse for 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, and you know, like, I don't want to do group exercise with my colleagues. Like, I'm just not interested in that. But I would like working conditions. I mean, if I were working at Amazon, obviously I'm very lucky and I've, I have a white-collar job. But if I were an Amazon, I would want to not have to worry about time off tasks so I can use the restroom. I would like to have a significant break so I don't have to, you know, consistently do the same motions for hours at a time and I can actually have a real physical break. Like these are things that could be given um, or could be won by the employees through an effort to unionize, a successful effort to unionize. And that's part of the reason why workers in Bessemer, Alabama, were trying to unionize. And so, you know, you said something so interesting on the same podcast I referenced earlier, A World to Win, where you said that like these workers in Bessemer were forced to go to these meetings with Amazon you know, higher ups, executives, and they were just telling them over and over again, like, you know, if you unionize, the union's going to get in between, between us, like it's going to destroy our relationship. But they've not only started to automate 
you know, certain positions within these warehouses. They've also kind of automated the relationship between worker and manager through apps. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think I was referencing something that one of the sort of most visible union supporters in the Bessemer effort um, said in an interview. Her name's Jennifer Bates. Um, and she was one of the first workers to reach out to RWDSU and get the union um, campaign rolling. And she was saying, you know, in these, it, what you're referring to is a captive audience meeting, um, which is where the employer requires you to listen to your manager scare you, right? And again, the insult here is that this is Amazon, where there's no time to even use the bathroom. And all of a sudden, the boss has found hours of your shift where you have plenty of free time to listen to your boss. So like, how insulting is that? That, oh, turns out they could have done this all along. Um, But in these meetings, yeah, the manager was saying, you know, a classic third party sort of argument that the union's going to get in between us. And Jennifer Bates says, you know, I don't have a relationship with the company. I don't have a relationship with you, my manager. I have a relationship with the app. I have a relationship with the scanner that I use in the warehouse um, and with the algorithms that tell me, you know, when I've taken too much time in between scanning products or, you know, moving something from one part of the the facility to the other. Um, so it sort of undercuts the arguments in that this is already an incredibly alienated job. Um, so you don't have much to lose. You know, even the bullshit that bosses say doesn't really make any sense in this context because you're just living in a dystopian surveillance state. Um, you don't have human relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's so bleak. But, you know, one thing that we try to do is not allow um, the failed unionization effort in Bessemer to get us down because it's, you know, it's one battle, uh, but the war continues. And so, you know, that sparked efforts in other warehouses. At least it got, you know, warehouse workers to start talking about the possibility of unionizing. Have you come across anything that gives you any hope that, there'll be more efforts in the future um, that could possibly be more successful? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, totally understandably can't help but speculate when, but they've never experienced what this actually looks like, right? So you're watching the media coverage and you're like placing bets. Like, is this going to hurt workers? This loss, is this going to set things back? The reality when you're actually in touch with warehouse workers and sort of understand how these things work is that people are organizing and they are metabolizing the lessons of losses and they're metabolizing the lessons of wins and they're still organizing. Um, And I think sort of at the micro scale, you know, something that one of the workers said in Bessemer the day that the the vote count was announced by the NLRB and it was a real loss. um, He said, I have work tomorrow. You know, I am an outspoken union supporter. I have a thousand coworkers who voted yes for this union. We still work there. We are still a union. Right. And so I think just on a basic level, if you understand how like workplace power goes, like these are workers who under incredibly um, adverse conditions still voted yes and defied all of the threats and retaliation. Um, so I think first and foremost, that gives me hope because it's really shocking that that many workers actually, you know, withstood that kind of retaliation and actual what seems to be law breaking. I mean, it's quite likely that there will be a rerun of this election. Um, it does seem like Amazon <laughs> Um, violated laws, which to be clear, are completely written for bosses in the first place. Like you don't have to break the law right. to union bust. Um, and Amazon couldn't even help itself and still did seem to. Um, at least that's where things are headed. Um, NLRB hearings are still going on. But beyond that, I mean, what gives me hope is that this actually has somewhat energized an already existing movement to organize Amazon warehouses, not in the U.S., but around the world. You know, people are more people than ever in these warehouses 
have been talking about organizing. I mean, I hear from warehouse workers all the time who are just asking for like nuts and bolts questions or to be hooked up with a union organizer or whatever, you know, or they read something and they want to know more details about a patent that Amazon has for surveillance technology. You know, the movement is still existing. It's still ongoing. And there, you know, there are networks that exist around the world. There are organized warehouses, particularly in Europe and, you know, European workers have have already dealt with some of these tactics. For example, German workers were going on strike and Amazon responded by building out its warehouses in Poland um, to undercut their their power and reroute their packages. And the German workers, instead of, you know, being resentful and sort of chauvinistic um, and just being anti-Eastern European worker for undercutting their power, they started <laughs> building networks with the Polish workers. And those networks still exist and they have organizations in place now to coordinate their efforts. So we need more of that. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I'm a very pessimistic person. I don't think you could be a socialist who like writes about working class power in America without being somewhat pessimistic. Um, but at the end of the day, like the efforts are still ongoing. Um, and, you know, we have to take this on because Amazon is undercutting everything that exists as far as standards, whether it's in their industry, adjacent industries, at the level of like democratic control over the state, what little there is, like there is no way around Amazon. And so I'm, I'm heartened by the attention that this gets and the amount of energy people have. And, you know, of course, by the fact that workers themselves are still willing to, you know, risk serious loss of income, firing, you know, incredible legal threats um, because they, they want to do what's right. Um, before we let you go, Alex, uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about this bill in the New York State Senate that is calling for sectoral bargaining for gig workers. Now, that sounds kind of good, but is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that was a great audition for some sort of like 60 minutes gig. But is it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that I just gave, I tried to give my little like qualified rousing optimism speech because this is- It was a, great. It's incredibly depressing, um, this subject in particular <sighs> to me. Um, so- I, before we get into the details of the bill, to be clear, like, you know, the the wind is at the backs of the gig companies. They just had this huge win with Prop 22 in California. Um, and so there was this sense we did of... It. <laughs> we did it, folks. We did it, fam. <laughs> yeah, we did it, fam. Here in California. Us three, we're in the California. Three of we us, did it. We, we all did it. Guys. Did it. We all voted for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so and so there was some ins- uncertainty because like Biden, as horrible as he is, does have some critics of the gig companies in his administration. Um, and so there was some lack of clarity about which way things are going to go over the next four years. Like, are the gig companies going to be able to federalize this model that they built in, in Cal- California, which is, you know, basically a third category is what they call it. So neither worker nor proper freelancer Um, But, you know, this sort of quasi independent contractor who's sort of subject to all of the whims and and standards of the employer, but without having any labor rights or very minimal rights. Um, And that's what the gig companies want is they want to make that a national level um, law. And what they're doing in the wake of this victory in California is going to different states and trying to build um, pressure to pass those at, at the state level. And so New York is a key sort of goal of theirs. If they could conquer California and New York and then maybe Illinois, you know, they've really done a lot. Um, And so that's what this bill is. Um, It is, you know, it's still being written. No one has leaked what's in it yet. Um, But the the article you're referring to was um, from Bloomberg, Josh Edelson, who's a great labor reporter, um, detailed that there is a bill that seems to be near agreement and it's going to it might be introduced soon um, at the state level that gives sectoral bargaining, quote unquote, 
um, two gig workers like drivers for Uber and Lyft. Um, and in exchange, it locks them out of employment status. So they're not employees under this bill, at least everything I've seen about it. So they would have the right with this bill to have unions and to bargain with these employers in some way, right, for certain standards. Um, now, the reason that it matters for us on the left and is more complicated than just like, fuck these companies is that some unions are involved in crafting this language. And the reason that unions would be involved in this is it does add members to their roles. And that gives them not only financial power, but also more political power to say that they have X, Y, and Z number of members now. Um, And so, you know, I've written in the past about how labor has been pretty unified in opposition to this because it's seen as selling out these workers, right? So it, it gives some benefit to a union, but these workers are literally put as under legal law, you know, under laws as second class citizens, basically. They don't have rights that are legally theirs. And so unions have been pretty unified saying we're not going to do that. You know, equal rights are equal rights. Um, we learned from the problems of the New Deal that we should not exclude sectors of workers, especially not, um, you know, these are majority um people of color, majority women. And so you're actually legalizing inequality here under the law by denying them, say, minimum wage rights and access to overtime, um, things like that. And instead, these laws say, you know, we'll strike a bargain. Um, We won't give them those rights um, and we'll sort of lock in this model that these gig companies have pioneered. Um, But in exchange, maybe they'll get access to unemployment or they'll be able to have workers comp. You know, it's sort of like a bargaining chip. Um, but the reality is that worker power requires workers, um, and there are no workers involved in these negotiations. Um, and the most democratic labor organizations that work with and are and are composed of gig workers are really opposed to this bill um, because, again, it locks in a model that is completely illegal. You know, these these companies, as we said, Uber doesn't turn a profit. Um, its entire business model is just breaking the law and labor arbitrage. Um, and if we put in writing that this is okay and we pretend that gig companies are a legitimate sector, um, we sort of lock in an inability to overcome these business models and it legitimates the model itself. Um, It also, you know, undercuts efforts at the federal level to pass things like the PRO Act. Um, It says, you know, unions don't need to change these models. We can actually, we can bargain with, um, again, people who are responsible for incredible injustices against workers. Hmm. Um, So it's really dark that, you know, for example, the transit, the transport workers union president is approving of this bill. He's quoted in these pieces saying it's really good. Um, That is a union with radical history. So this is really like deeply upsetting and would be an incredible um, loss and just like a sad statement about where we're at if a state like New York locked in exclusions to labor rights. And you know why it's important, um, you know, when I was in college back in New York, I worked at UPS part-time, um, but I was in the Teamsters Union. Uh, when you get hired, they tell you, I think it's, I think it was like 30 days, basically. It was like, don't fuck up for 30 days <laughs> until you make book, and then you're good, which essentially meant this. They can't just fire you, which mm-hmm. once you remove that, from the equation, they now have to talk to you with some type of level of respect and dignity, right? And I was just a pissant part-time worker in the sword aisle. Like I was in the, um, you know, basically the warehouse, a box comes off the truck, it goes on a belt into the sword aisle, and we put it on some other belt 
um, designated for things that are going to Texas, things that are going to down south, things that are going out west, right? Like we have to sort the freaking boxes, right? Like mm-hmm. not an important job. But at the end of the day, when we're getting overwhelmed and, you know, boxes are piling up and it's starting to get dangerous, there's a freaking button you press, boom. No supervisor could come and turn that button back on until we feel like we've moved everything safely and we do what we want to do. Like, it gives you the right to work with some type of respect and some type of dignity. Um, Again, because these people, as long as you show up to work and you show up on time, they cannot fire you, right? Um, And, you know, another thing that would happen is every, I would say like once a month, my shop steward would come to the sort out and tell the supervisor (laughs) to go fuck himself as a way of basically telling the guys like, yo, these people are not our rulers. They're not our masters. They just work here just like us. They don't get to treat us any type of way, right? And and to me, that means everything, you know. Um, on the sort, I was probably making like 12 bucks an hour, 11 bucks an hour, but I was in the same union as the freaking drivers, basically the most important people in the company who make a, a make a good amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that collective bargaining, that collectivism is what allowed for everybody at the job to have dignified work. That's what we're talking about here, right? Like the ability for the bosses to just come down and just come down on you and threaten you and threaten your ability to pay your bills, to pay, you know, for your kids' daycare, et cetera, et cetera. Your freaking health care. You know, not that Amazon would do that, but, you know, um, your freaking health care. You know, like all of these things that are essential to our lives, they can't just come down and put us under duress, by threatening and take those things away from you. That's what Alex is up here talking about today, man. Like literally a worker's a worker's right to be a freaking human being at his job, you know? Um, and it means everything. Yeah. 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 Much like uh, the, the greatest weapon that the, you know, that the, the union has uh, is the strike. Uh, the greatest weapon that the boss has is, is the sack is like being yep. able to fire someone, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're just granting them that, uh, making it easier uh, for them to do that, then, um, you know, you've lost you've lost the game right there. Yeah, and I would just add, not to belabor the point, but, like, you know, everybody who's in the union organizing world, it's understood that while I think a lot of pundits try to pretend that they don't need to talk about dignity or feelings, that it's all about, like, wages, the reality in shops is that half the time workers are most motivated by the, the feeling that they're being disrespected mm-hmm. and that they want dignity. And so... You know, bills like this that sell out workers, I mean, that is literally what is being done is that like unions are shaking hands with people that destroy workers' lives. Um, The amount that that sort of doubles down this sense of feeling literally subhuman, like you are, I mean, we talked about the alienation of Amazon's algorithms. Imagine, I mean, being an Uber driver is you're completely governed by an algorithm and they can just shut you off and boot you. And all of a sudden you're starving and your family's on the streets. And so having a route foreclosed for you and your coworkers to organize um, because someone somewhere decided in a back room to strike a deal with the people who created that algorithm and who profit off of your misery is just the outrage of that and the disrespect that will follow from being locked out of things like the right to a minimum wage. I like I really don't know how to communicate just how harmful that is and how no labor organization, nothing worthy of the name of union should have anything to do with something like that. Amen. Alex, 
Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah. Everyone go check out Alex's work over at Jacobin. She's a staff writer who covers the labor beat, and she does it well. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was fun. All right. Amazon, baby. That was great. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Special thanks to Alex Press and, of course, Wozni Lombre for joining us today. Woz, you're the best. And um, for all of you who are watching, if you love the show, please like and share. Share the video as soon as it's uploaded on the YouTube channel and ready to go. And make sure you guys are subscribed to Jacobin, not just the YouTube channel, but of course, the wonderful magazine that made all of this possible. We love you guys. Have an excellent weekend and we'll see you soon. 